And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. This is the word of our Lord. Uh, before we jump in, I actually want to um, give some encouragement for two of our announcements. So again, tonight we have our prayer meeting and uh, Super Sunday right afterwards. And those are, uh, it's a really important monthly rhythm of ours as a church um, where we come together and we pray. Um, that's real ministry we're doing. And then we fellowship together. So I really encourage you to come. Hopefully we won't have this kind of apocalyptic thunderstorm outside in the midst of it. But I really encourage you to come to that. And then also the October 16th Fall Fest it says family. It's the spiritual family. You don't have to be a family to come. Uh, but again, that's a really fun time to take a Saturday and spend it with our church family um, and, just, and just have fun. And so I really encourage you to make a priority to be there for both of those because um, they're important rhythms in the life of our church, just to be the family that, that we are. So I encourage you to come to those. And um, let me open us with a word of prayer. Father, we... We are your children, and we come um, because you have called us by your grace, and we come from all places this week, from um, busyness, from maybe suffering, maybe discouragement, maybe joy. come from various places, but we come to the same Father. We ask that you will give us what we need from your word. I said it will be living and active able to pierce the center of our beings and call us closer to your son, Jesus. Pray this in your holy name. Amen. Uh, I wish I could preach every sermon with thunder in the background. I feel like it'll make this very intense. But most of us dread that phone call in the middle of the night where someone calls and family or a friend had a tragic accident, a car accident, we fear that. Some of you, even as we talk about this, feel a cold pit in your stomach. No one wants to get a phone call at one in the morning. You know it's going to be bad. But imagine that a friend or family member called you one in the morning. You picked up. said, what, what's going on? He said, okay, are you sitting down? He said, yes, I'm sitting down. He said, okay, earlier today, I was trying to switch my internet provider. I was talking to a customer service rep, and they were being difficult. I got very angry and I cursed them out over the phone, and in that moment, I despised them. And I can't sleep, I feel so guilty. I need to confess this sin to you. Now, some of you are, are far more gracious than others and would respond very politely, like, oh, thank you for calling me at one in the morning. But I think all of us would be wondering in the back of our minds, this really could not have waited <laughs> until the morning, like 8 a.m., you could have called me and told me and confessed this sin to me. But now, if you did get a phone call, though, about a car accident of someone you loved or a tragic event or accident in the middle of the night, none of us would wonder, why, are you, why could this have waited till the morning? We all would recognize, no, it makes sense. Thank you for calling me at one in the morning. This is important. This is urgent. Because at the end of the day, a car accident, 
feels a lot more urgent than, than sin, even cursing someone made in God's image out on the phone. What's interesting is Jesus has some pretty intense words for us this morning. And based, as, I've, as I've wrestled with this text, I don't want to over-exaggerate, but I'm not sure Jesus would agree with our predilection there of wondering, why, are you, you know, why couldn't this have waited until tomorrow? See, we, it, it's just common human nature that we try to trivialize sin. We try to make it seem less than it is, and we do that so we can rationalize behavior so we don't have to deal with the depth of our sin. I mean, there's various self-preservation kind of me- um, mechanisms we go through. But that's just, you know, humans, we just, we naturally trivialize sin. But Jesus never trivializes sin. We see that in this passage this morning. He takes it really seriously. But here's the thing. Jesus takes sin very seriously. But he doesn't trivialize grace either. In some ways, you could say that sin is very serious, yes. But for Jesus, grace is even more serious. So that's why it never ends on a note of pessimism, but it ends on a note of grace. So I'm um, giving an outline where we're going this morning. We're going to ask first, what is sin? Then the uh, second point is pay attention to yourself and pay attention to each other. And to give a recap where we are again in Luke, um, if you have a Bible, flip over to Luke 15, uh, verse 1 and 3. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him, and so he told them this parable. Now switch over to 16.1. It says, And he also said to his disciples, and then flip over to 17.1, where we are this morning, and it says, And he said to his disciples. Jesus is in this protracted time of teaching his disciples. He's not, I mean, he, he references religious leaders. He references other people and events. But he's really taking time to focus on those who have decided to follow Christ. And he's giving them some extended teaching. And this will continue up until we get to Luke 19, when Jesus enters Jerusalem. And then things begin to change and shift in his ministry. But before we actually jump into our text, I want to just I want to talk a little bit about how do we define sin? Because again, Jesus says some things in this, in this, in this, in this story that we're going to look at this morning that may seem um, a little bit like over the, over the top, a little bit like unnecessary, unrealistic. But if we have a good understanding of what sin is, a biblical understanding of what sin is, it helps us understand why Jesus uses the words he does, why he speaks as heavily as he does. And so I just want to talk, of our first point is just going just to kind of lay a foundation of, okay, what, is, what does the Bible say about sin? Now, here's the thing about sin is it, it's very simple in some ways. You can explain it to a five-year-old. Like, I can explain it to my son, and, and he understands sin is, is the bad things we do, like hitting your sister or lying to your parents. And he understands that there's an intuitive sense of, of right and wrong. He doesn't have a theology degree. He has a very normal five-year-old's ability to, you know, capacity for cognition. But he understands there's an intuitive sense of, that's right, that's wrong. And if I do that, it's good. If I do that, it's bad. Now, we can also, though, kind of um, nuance the definition of sin. Just making sure my son's okay. Okay, we're good. So you can also nuance that definition quite a bit uh, in the Bible. And so, for instance, the New City Catechism, which is a catechism produced by Redeemer Presbyterian in, in Manhattan, defines sin as this way. It says, sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. That's a lot more expansive, a lot more substantive. There's a lot in there. We could spend a whole sermon just unpacking what that definition is. But this definition focuses on, on one line there, 
which is not being or doing what he requires in his law, focuses on God's law. Sin is breaking God's law, his commandments, not doing what he says or being who he says we should be. That's, a, that's what you call a, a legal definition of sin or a juridical definition of sin. It focuses on sin as breaking God's law. Now, that's true, and that's a very important part of sin, but here's the thing. If, if our understanding of sin is just don't, don't break God's commands, don't break his law, it can begin to feel arbitrary. It begins to feel like God's just giving us arbitrary rules. So, for instance, you know, there's a culture where questioning a lot of, of things about sexuality and gender that used to be taken for granted, And so why is it the case that only a man and a woman can get married? Why can't a man and a man get married, or a woman and a woman? And if our understanding of sin is just, well, that's because what God said, that's just his law, it can feel kind of arbitrary. Like, what's the purpose behind it? You know, is God just, you know, a moody tyrant kind of issuing dictums that we have to follow and there's no reason behind it? And so, so sin is, 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 is more comprehensive than just obeying or disobeying God's law. Again, it's true, but it's incomplete. And one thing I've found really helpful in understanding the more expansive nature of sin, um, there's a theologian named Cornelius Plantinga. He defines sin as this. He says, sin is vandalism of God's shalom. I'm going to explain what that means. Shalom is the Old Testament word for peace, or the Hebrew word for peace, now, when we say peace, like you think after a war ends, there's peace, we think, oh, it just means that there's no fighting. But the Hebrew understanding of peace is way, way broader than that. It doesn't just involve the end of conflict. It involves human flourishing and abundance and social harmony and justice and goodness and wholeness. It, it, it's, it's, it's society functioning at its best. That's Shalom. And so sin is vandalism of God's shalom. You think of vandalism, you've seen, you know, someone's like defaced a, a historic monument and broken it or, or spray painted some, you know, a side of a building. It's vandalizing what God made good. So, so when God made the world, he made it with a specific design and that design functions towards shalom. If everything's working, we have wholeness and goodness and societal flourishing. So anything that goes against God's design is going against societal flourishing. It's going against what's best for us as people. So for instance, if you steal from your neighbor, it's not just breaking God's law, although it is breaking God's law, don't steal, but it's also vandalizing what God designed to be a relationship characterized by trust, right? If we're stealing from our neighbor, we're breaking, we're, we're affecting what God made to be the case of relationships that are open and transparent and vulnerable and marked by trust. You're vandalizing that design for shalom. Or think of pornography. This is a big one in the church today. We typically think of it breaking God's law. Yes, that's true, but it's also vandalizing God's design for human sexuality and distorting it. It's far more than just a sin against God. It's, it's destroying God's design, which even as, even as, 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 as um, the New City Catechism defines it at the very end, it leads to the disintegration of all creation. That's the end of all sin. So why is this helpful? Okay, this may seem a little bit esoteric. Why is this helpful to talk about sin as shalom? Well, first, it helps sin feel less arbitrary. It's like, okay, sin is not just breaking God's law, it's also what leads to the disintegration of creation because the world was made with a specific design by a designer, and when we move against that design, things break. 
It's kind of like when I'm going on a walk with my kids and there's berries and some bush and Addie just wants to put one in her mouth and I tell her, no, don't do that because it may be poisonous and it could kill you. If I just tell her, don't do that, it just feels arbitrary. But no, it's because this is gonna potentially hurt you if you do this. And that's the same with sin because it's not just breaking God's command, but it's vandalizing his shalom, his design. When we do it, it leads to our own disintegration, our own destruction as people and creatures made in God's image. So it removes a sense of arbitrariness. But second, the second reason this is helpful, and the reason why I wanted to begin with this, is it helps us recognize how expansive sin is. The sin is not just between me and God, although first and foremost it is. It's an affront against God. It's breaking God's law. There's a vertical aspect to sin, but there's also a horizontal. It affects relationships around me. We have this myth in America of private life. So whatever you do in your home makes no difference to the rest of society. And the Bible says that's just not possible. All sin is horizontal as well as vertical. All sin is destroying the relationships that God built to be in place. It's working and marring and vandalizing God's design for human flourishing. And so all sin is personal, but it is not private, no matter what kind of sin it is. And again, as the New City Catechism finishes, the ultimate end game of sin is the disintegration of creation. So just keep this in mind as we, as we talk about, as we look at this passage, as we look at some of the hard words that Jesus has. Keep this full understanding of sin in mind and it'll help make sense of why Jesus speaks the way he does, why he uses the heavy words that he does. So that was the first point. What is sin? Sin is the, is the vandalism of God's shalom. Second, is pay attention to yourself. And here we actually get into our text. Read uh, or follow along verses one to the first half of three. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. Temptations to sin are sure to come. Literally in the Greek, it's, it's, it's impossible for, for temptations not to come. That's kind of clunky, so the ESV just says it's, it's temptations are sure to come. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. Tomorrow, Monday morning, there's going to be temptations. Tuesday, there's going to be temptations. Are we preparing for it? That's the question, though. Is it on our radar? That, yeah, I'm going to face temptations. So here's the thing. We confess, we confess just a minute ago in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the forgiveness of sins. That's central to the Christian story. We believe that we were sinners who God redeemed and made saints and we're sinner saints and we're new creations. We're not who we used to be. Nonetheless, we live in this time of transition between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming where we are in fact sinner saints. We live in a world where the flesh is still at work in our own hearts and in a world that is still marred by sin and still under the power of the prince of this world. And so Jesus says, so in this time of transition, temptations will come. Are we ready for it? I remember when the pandemic first started and um, we didn't know what it was gonna be and people were just trying to prepare in crazy ways and everyone and their mother decided they needed like a year's worth of toilet paper and so you just couldn't find it. Um, and uh, Mark and I were late to the game, so we, 
We struggled. It was hard. But we went out and we tried to buy like canned goods. And even canned goods were hard to find. Like I think there was like six cans left on the shelf at Kroger. It was nuts. And there's just so much uncertainty. We didn't, I mean, people were saying, go withdraw $10,000 because the banking system's gonna crash and go do this and that and everything. And we just didn't know what was gonna come. And so you're trying to prepare because there was so much uncertainty. We prepared in the midst of uncertainty. We didn't know if there was gonna be a massive supply chain failure and there wasn't gonna be food on the shelves. But because there was uncertainty, we're preparing for that. But here is Jesus giving us a promise. Temptations are gonna come. They're gonna come. Another way to put it is we live in a world where there is someone who hates us, who has a certain level of autonomy and power given to him from God in the mysterious providence of God, and he wants to destroy us. Are we even cognizant of that when we wake up Monday morning, that Satan is real and he's going to try to destroy us today? That may sound kind of, uh, I don't know, like an exaggeration or hyperbole, We're like, that doesn't sound realistic. We don't see Satan's active presence. Maybe in some ways you'd think of like the exorcist. Like I don't see people levitating. I don't see people like shooting vomit out their mouth 16 feet. But Satan hides in plain sight. And sometimes we forget that those temptations to lust or, you know, the proneness to get angry over things that aren't worth getting angry over or the proneness to pride or even the proneness to just entertain ourselves to death. These are not inconsequential things, but they're the tip of the iceberg of a cosmic warfare that's going on all around us, where Satan is taking on the church and trying to defeat it. Temptations are going to come. Are we, are we prepared? But here's the thing. Jesus' point in, in this teaching is not to prepare yourself for the temptations that will come. His point is, yes, temptations will come. That's a certainty. But oh, woe to the one through whom they come. Woe to the one who is an avenue for temptation or for stumbling to another believer. You see this in the second half of verse one. Again, woe to the one through whom these temptations come. How does that happen? Okay, how can we, whether, you know, intentionally or unintentionally, how can we be avenues of temptation or stumbling for a fellow believer? I think the areas where that most likely can happen are areas where we have influence, where people look up to us. If you're, we, we gain influence for all kinds of reasons. Age is a common one. If you've been around decades longer than other people on this planet, there's just an assumption that you've learned something during your time on earth, and so there's an influence that comes with that. If you're a junior or senior in college, freshmen view you as if you are a sage, which in hindsight is silly. But in the time, you have influence. If you have a younger sibling or have younger friends, if you're at work and, you have, um, and you're good at your job, you have influence. Um, if you have people to report to, you have influence. If you're a parent, you have influence. And, it, and, and, and so what Jesus is saying is, he said, look, steward that influence well. Because those who look up to you, you can have a dramatic impact on them. You can have a massive impact on their lives and, and how they live and what they care about. So when Jesus says, woe to the one through whom this sin comes, he's saying, look, see where you have influence in your life and steward that well. Be intentional about that. Now, there's a million ways that we can steward influence badly, okay? So if you're robbing banks, that's a bad way, obviously, right? Like, that's a bad example. If you're, like, snorting lines of cocaine on the weekends, like, these are bad ways to steward your influence. But most of us aren't doing that. 
So what would it look like for us to maybe steward our influence well or badly? And there's so many ways, it's, it's, it's impossible to categorize it. So much of it is discernment, understanding our own context in life, what has God given us, what is he calling us to do and be. But I've thought a couple of examples that I think maybe can get some wheels turning as we try to think, Lord, how do I steward my influence well so that I'm not an avenue of stumbling for another Christian? Well, if you're a parent or if one day you will be a parent, that is a, a, a massive influence we have. And, and, and so for my kids, I'm their first, Marco and I are both their first authority figures, lover now. Um, and so how we act and how we steward that influence will directly impact how they view God, who is the authority overall. So when I am um, impatient to my kids, or if I am dictatorial, if I am tyrannical, or heavy-handed, or unforgiving, that is gonna directly impact how they view God. And that could be providing a stumbling block to them being able to understand and know the God who welcomes a prodigal, who seeks out the one sheep who gets lost. So as parents, Woe to us if we succeed at everything, but we put stumbling blocks in the ways of our kids to know God. You want to know what keeps me up at night? That's what keeps me up at night. I think another way that, that, that we steward influence is in areas of Christian freedom. This is gray areas where Christians disagree on whether you can do something or not do something. So the classic one is alcohol. The church has gone through many different phases of either you know, saying no alcohol is completely wrong or alcohol is completely okay and, and everything in between. I think, you know, maybe 30 years ago, the understanding would have been if you're a Christian, drinking alcohol is always and forever bad in any case, in any circumstance. And we do these kind of hermeneutical dances to try to understand how Jesus turned water into wine. Well, it was like a 1% alcohol. It, wasn't, it was more like a fermented grape juice. And it's like, no, it was wine. Jesus made wine. Clearly, alcohol isn't inherently evil. And then we do this hard swing the other way where all of a sudden it's, no, it's Christian freedom to drink. And there's churches where almost like if you're not going to drink, it's almost seen as like a legalism. Like, you Pharisee, how can you not drink? And we're not stewarding that Christian freedom well. And I remember talking to a pastor who's part of a church where, you know, did this hard swing where it's like there's no caution in, respond, in regards to alcohol. And, uh, and he told me about some of the fallout of that. He said they had a, a, a man in their church he was on a business trip, and he went out to a bar after work, got drunk, and ended up sleeping with uh, a woman he met in the bar. He was married, had kids. Now, look, if, if he's sleeping with women he meets in the bars, like there's other issues in alcohol. But would that have happened if he wasn't drunk? Maybe not. And would he have felt comfortable getting drunk if he wasn't in a church that, like, refused to put any limits on alcohol? They refused to steward the influence. The, the, the men who, who influenced him didn't give him any sense that, you know, hey, one in 10 people who drink alcohol become alcoholics. Yeah, it, when, done, when drunk, you know, it can, be, it can be done to the glory of God. It can also be something that destroys your life. Just be careful. So in areas of Christian freedom, that's an area where we want to steward our influence and we can do it badly or we can do it well. And I think Paul gives us um, probably the best biblical um, example for how to handle issues of Christian freedom in 1 Corinthians 8. The Corinthians are, are having trouble because um, some people are willing to, are, 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 you know, there, there's, there's meat that's sacrificed to idols, and after it's sacrificed to idols, it's sold, sold in the marketplace. Some Christians thought you could eat that meat. Others thought, no, if you're doing that, you're kind of participating in 
you know, idol worship, and there's this disagreement. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 13, he says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. He's like, look, if eating meat that was sacrificed to idols makes a brother in Christ stumble because he feels like it's participating in idol worship, I'm just not gonna eat it. It's not, like, it's not a big deal. It's not worth it to me to be a stumbling block to another Christian. That's the Christian perspective. It's like if something I do is going to influence someone to stumble in their faith, I'm just not gonna do it. It's just not worth it. So where do you have influence? Again, all of us have influence somewhere. Some of us probably have more influence than others, and maybe if you're younger and you don't have a ton of influence yet, you will one day. But where do you have influence, or where might you have influence? And how are you stewarding it? We believe in God's mysterious providence. At the end of the day, we're not responsible for those we have influence over, and God's providence works in some crazy ways. But that's never an excuse not it's never an excuse to squander our influence. Woe to the one through whom it comes. And now we get to some of the hardest words I think Jesus says in the Holy New Testament. Verses two to three. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. A millstone would have been a a huge circular stone that would have sat on top of another stone. There would have been a hole in the middle, and you'd pour your grain into it, and you'd use cattle to kind of turn the stone because it's so big, and it would, gra- it would grind up the grain. So you just think of a stone that's huge. If that's tied to you, and you're thrown into the sea, you don't have a chance. You will sink to the bottom. And the point of that is, you know, if, if, if someone just ties you up and throws you into the water, well, maybe you can swim out. But if a millstone is tied to your leg, like, there's no chance. You're done. And so what Jesus is saying through this is that it would be better to die than to lead a brother or sister in Christ into sin. It would be better to die. And again, it's helpful to go to 1 Corinthians 8 to get a sense of why this is the case. Right before the, the verse we just read, in 11 to 12a, it says this. So by your knowledge, and here he's speaking to the Christians who felt okay eating meat sacrificed to idols. He said, look, we know idols are nothing. We should be able to eat it, even though if it makes our brothers or sisters stumble. He says, so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. When we act as a stumbling block to a fellow Christian, we're we're sinning against them. Again, sin is not just vertical, it's horizontal. It affects the relationships around us. We're sinning against our brothers. But secondly, and this is even more substantial, the verse finishes, so thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. When we fail to steward our influence well and and, and we lead a a brother or sister who looks up to us into sin or into stumbling, we're sinning against Jesus. And what that means is one day we'll stand before him on on, on the judgment day and we'll answer for it. And Jesus is saying it is better to die now than to have to answer one day to the Lord Jesus Christ for leading one of his blood-bought saints into sin. It would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. And so that's why Jesus says, so pay attention to yourselves. 
Pay attention to yourself. Steward your influence well. Steward it to God's glory. And be careful that you don't act as a potential avenue for a Christian to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. That's the second point. Third point is pay attention to each other. We get to verses three to four. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So first, Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves and so that you don't become a potential stumbling block for others or sin for others. Now pay attention to each other. If someone sins against you, what do you do in that situation? Now there's two common ways to handle conflict. These are extremes. You have your conflict avoider. It's like conflict is always bad. It is always best not to address it. And so there, there aren't a whole lot of fights if you're a conflict avoider, but you also don't resolve a whole lot of issues. And so over time, things get swept under the rug and it can lead to relationship estrangement and, and, and bad stuff. Other end of the spectrum are kind of your conflict embracers who feel no hesitancy to, you know, to, to pursue conflict, maybe even enjoy it. And so yeah, they do work towards resolving issues, but they also yell a lot and, and cause relationship damage along the way. The Christian way is neither. Christians confront one another because we love one another. It's different than, than, than the conflict embracers who oftentimes, you know, when you're sinned against, if, you're, if you don't mind conflict or if you like conflict, which is what my family is more like, when you're sinned against, there's a, you know, you're, you're confronting out of a sense of justice. This was wrong. You need to do X, Y, and Z to pay me back. Well, that's not, that's not the Christian way. On the other hand, if you're a conflict avoider, you're never going to conf- confront someone, no matter, no matter the sin, no matter what it's doing to them or the family, the highest good is, 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 is to, to not trouble the peace. But again, Christians, we confront sin because sin vandalizes God's shalom. When we're sinned against, the biggest problem is not my sense of internal justice of you have wronged me, it's that you have vandalized God's shalom and you're destroying yourself as well as me and other relationships. Sin is an affront to God, but it also destroys people. And so when we confront people, again, it's not because we want to get even. It's not because we want to get justice. It's because we love our brother and sister in Christ. And sin leads to the disintegration of creation. That means sin's going to destroy them if they don't repent and turn to Christ. That's why we confront now I want to give some practical advice. If you hate confrontation, the church needs you to confront more. <laughs> like if that's your tendency, like I'm peace at all costs, like you probably need to speak up more often. And the church needs that. On the other hand, if you are okay with confrontation or if you actually like it a little bit, you, you, you probably need to speak up less. The, the church needs you to speak up less. Practical advice. But the last piece of advice, which is most important, it's never confront someone unless love is really your main motive. If your main motive is I want to get even, or this just isn't right, or I'm angry, it's not going to go well. But if it's your main motive, there's, then there's the opportunity for real reconciliation. Now, we'll never have pure motives. It'll never be like 100% love. It'll always be some mixture because we're sinner saints. But what is the overriding major motive? Is it love for your brother or sister within and go for it. If it's not, then spend time with Jesus until it is. 
don't confront unless love is your major, is your major motive. Christians confront because we love each other. But we also confront, here's the, okay, here's the thing. The main point of this text is not actually about confrontation. It's actually about forgiveness. That's the main point that Jesus is making. Not that Christians should call each other out, but that Christians should forgive. And so Christians, we confront because we love each other, but we also confront because we want to forgive each other. That's, that's what we're hoping for when we confront. Like, I, I want to be able to joyfully forgive you. And so the, the, the illustration that Jesus uses is not about confrontation. It's about, it's about forgiveness. Seven times a day, as many times as it takes. You could read this passage and turn a church into kind of like a watchdog society where you're just waiting for someone to put their toe out of line. Boom, gotcha, I'm gonna confront you. And I've been to churches like that. That's not, a, that's not an aroma of Christ. There's no room to be who you really are, to be honest with struggles, because it's like, no, that's not the pious thing to say. That's not what Jesus is getting at. His emphasis actually here is that you should be willing to forgive people, not that you should be confronting people, although confrontation is often part of it. Said, forgive people. And the, the point of the seven times a day, that's, that's as many times as needed. But holy smokes, guys, let's think about that. How hard is it to forgive someone if they sin against you once? That's pretty hard. Jesus is saying, he could, he could come back to you six more times, and you've got to forgive him. And you know what's interesting? Sometimes, sometimes, it, sometimes it takes more than once to forgive someone for the same sin. If, if, if we get wronged bad enough, sometimes forgiving them once isn't enough, and we need to forgive them seven times for the same sin because it doesn't stick. And the reason for that is forgiveness is a lot more than just saying, I forgive you. When you forgive someone, literally what you're doing is you're saying, I'm absorbing the pain you caused me, and I'm also absorbing the just retribution your wrong deserves. Like, you wronged me in this way, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth would say, I get something in return. I forgive you. I release you from that debt. I'm going to absorb it. That's why forgiveness is painful sometimes. And that's why sometimes it's, we have to forgive someone seven times a day for the same wrong because it's just hard and it's painful. And I want to give a very gentle observation and that Jesus isn't giving a suggestion here, but he's giving a command. He writes in the imperative. He says, if he sins against you seven times, you must forgive him. How can we forgive? Fine Street, we forgive because we've been forgiven. You know, Christianity is not unique in valuing forgiveness in religions. It's not. It is unique in the motive it gives, though. We forgive because we were the prodigal son who squandered our father's inheritance, who ran from the Lord, and who was welcomed back with open arms, not because of what we've done, but because of the grace and the mercies of our God. And we were forgiven, and therefore we can forgive God didn't just wave a magic wand. He, you know, sometimes we think God forgives, like he just like, boop, you're forgiven, you're good. But again, forgiveness is more than saying, I forgive you. 
Forgiveness is both absorbing the wrong that's been done to you and absorbing the just retribution that's deserved, the debt of payment that's deserved. Every time God forgives us, he's absorbing what we've done to him and what we deserve in response. And that's why Jesus Christ had to die on a cross. It wasn't enough for Jesus just to be a forgiving, loving person, but there was a debt for God to be able to forgive us. And so each one of us has been forgiven far more than anyone could ever sin against us. Because someone sins against you once, but every sin we've ever committed was against God. And he absorbed that, and he absorbed the, the debt and the punishment. And so Colossians 2.14 says that Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He canceled our debt by nailing it through his own hands and feet. How do we forgive? Well, we're, we're gospel people. That means we're a good news people. We're people who are formed by the grace of God. That is what runs through our bloodstream. So what gets us up in the morning is we're redeemed people by the grace and the mercies of God, not because of what I have done. We are forgiven people, and so we can forgive. We've entered the kingdom by grace. We were once rebels, and we've been made beloved children. And I, and I tell you what, it's, it's, it's frankly easy to wax poetic about the grace of God because it's beautiful. You don't have to be a Christian to recognize how beautiful it is. But what really shows whether we understand and believe the gospel is whether we can forgive people. That's when the rubber hits the road. And when we forgive people, we don't dismiss it. We don't say, that's not a big deal. It is usually a big deal when we're sinned against. We don't euphemize it, but we absorb the wrong. We've released the debt because Christ has absorbed far more and released us from far greater debt. We are forgiven people, and so we can forgive. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are God who, who runs after the prodigal, who chases us down when we run from you, who does not give up on us when you should give up on us. I thank you that you have grace even for us when we struggle to forgive, when we're eaten up by bitterness and anger, and still you are the God who welcomes us home. I pray if there are any here who are still prodigal running, may they find a home in your presence. Jesus, we ask this in your holy name. Amen.